Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Pete Sweeney, an opinion columnist for Reuters Breaking Views in Hong Kong. Pete and I go way back. He was my boss twice, very, very briefly, but I wouldn't say that defines our relationship. We met in Shanghai at a magazine called China Economic Review, which he was the editor of and I would later become the editor of. Pete and I would become friends, and when I moved to Beijing, I would regularly crash at his place on visits back to Shanghai. Then, when I got a job at Reuters, I briefly reported to him as a trainee. If you're curious about the world of finance, this is the interview for you. If you're not curious about the world of finance, there's still a lot to like in here. Chinese high finance, it turns out, is a lot more ridiculous than you might imagine. Millions or billions of dollars can sometimes change hands for pretty stupid reasons. Pete will mention some of these instances. We will also discuss a big financial and consumer safety news story in China that never ever made it in the Western press, and discuss a little bit about how short-selling works, or I guess in this case rather how short-selling sometimes does not work. Just to give you some guide rails on how to understand this one, we mentioned a guy named Graham, who is the publisher of the magazine. In other words, he was the owner of the guy who hired us. This is also about the millionth episode where the term Xinjiang comes up. If you don't know what it is or what is going on there by now, you should go out and school yourself. For those that don't, Xinjiang is a region in far western China where a Muslim ethnic minority is being interned by the Chinese government in massive camps. So now that you have your glossary, Graham and Xinjiang, I think you're ready. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Pete Sweeney, a columnist for Reuters Breaking Views in Hong Kong. First of all, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, thanks, thanks for getting around to me, man. I've been looking forward to, to being on here. <laughs> Great to have you on. And um, so we usually start with, if you can just set the scene for us a little bit, where you are physically, like in your house and geographically, and a little bit about what kind of work week you've had. It's 8.20 in the morning in Hong Kong. I moved here three years ago, and I live on this quite a large island with quite a small population. It's Lantau Island. It's the island that the airport is on. But I live in a little fishing village on it, and it's got like maybe 7,000 people. It's mostly jungle. There is a herd of water buffalo that have free range through the town. There's also a herd of dairy cattle that wander around. There's a Trappist monastery nearby in the jungle that started and then gave up on a dairy operation, but they left the cows behind. <laughs> so they kind of wander around all over the place. There's a beach. Unlike much of the rest of Hong Kong, people live here because you can get a bigger apartment. So I have this nice little townhouse thing with a back patio and a barbecue, and I've got a rooftop kind of bar area that I built up to look over the sea and the mountains. And all in all, it's one of the better places in the world, really, to ride out this outbreak, I think, if not the slowdown. I mean, well, the interesting thing is Hong Kong is so connected with global financial markets and with trade that economically it's going to get, well, it is getting hammered by the protests before this hit, and then everything else is going really as badly as possible. The city can't get a break. But me personally, I'm okay. I'm in this little town. Social distancing is much easier. Yeah, I'm a financial columnist, right? So I write opinions these days. 
since I moved to Hong Kong. That's my job. So whenever you have a market crash, economic crash like this, it makes my job much easier because it's easy to find things to write about. You know, opinion is kind of a product and every opinion page, every opinion operation has kind of an output quota. So it's just death when news is slow and everything is just kind of bumping along. Okay, you really have to stretch to find something stimulating. Now it's like, you know, just shooting fish in a barrel or whatever. There's so many things happening. I, I was quite happy this week because one of my pet peeve companies, I guess, uh, Luckin Coffee, I don't know if you've heard of it. So this is a company, it's a Chinese company for people unfamiliar that positioned itself very well as kind of this challenger to Starbucks. And it hit the marketing moment at the perfect time because it got started up right around when the trade war hit. And, you know, the story was that, oh, there's a trade war and China of course, is going to go after American brands in China. And everybody, so naturally, they look at, you know, Apple, and then they look at Starbucks. And Starbucks is really interesting because unlike almost any other American company in China, uh, Starbucks has basically a monopoly and has since it got started out. There's nobody else who has ever mounted a serious challenge to this company, right? I mean, there was no Chinese Starbucks. There's lots of people who did fake Chinese Starbucks. They would create something that looked exactly like it. Or there's a famous IP lawsuit, one of the first in China about this company that actually duplicated Starbucks. And, you know, the employees thought they were working for Starbucks. It was that good. But but they never actually built, you know, a serious competitor. And then this little company comes out and says, hey, we've exploded. We've built new stores. We're going to have more stars than Starbucks. We've got this new model. It's app powered. We're going to tap this new generation of Chinese coffee drinkers out there and everybody's going to get real rich. But you just need to stick with us because we're not profitable now because we're plowing all our money into expansion. And there are all these problems with the model. They weren't in good Starbucks. Like, like Starbucks has great locations in China. I mean, I know you live there. There were corners in Shanghai where every corner, where two, two out of four corners would have a Starbucks on it. Right, yeah. They own all the good real estate and they sign these leases. If they didn't own it, they sign these leases with landlords to say like, well, we'll rent here, but you can't rent to any other coffee shops in your mall. You know, we're going to be the only one. Or you can rent to one other one that needs to be on the opposite side. So like, you know, Luckin is going to come in and fight this model in this interesting way. And there were going to be delivery to say, okay, well, we can't rent like good places, this third space or whatever. You sit there with your laptop and take a business meeting. We're going to rent like we'll have a place up on the 20th floor in this building and we're just going to do delivery and stuff like that. And that's going to be the way we get around it. They use a lot of tech language. Chen Jia, one of the founders, referred to the customers as users at one point. They were using this subsidy strategy that you saw in a lot of other Chinese app startups in terms of we just need user share and we'll, we'll lose money and we'll subsidize stuff and we'll get to profitability later. But I mean, fundamentally, it's a coffee operation. It's not that complicated and it wasn't that unusual. You know, lots of people are doing delivery coffee, Starbucks included. Anyways, the whole thing blew up in this. I, I was very suspicious. The stock has been going bananas recently because they posted this financial turnaround in the last quarter of the report and the stock went nuts. It was like a $12 billion company, I think, at one point. And now it turns out that the chief operating officers and other in the company were apparently manipulating sales figures and the whole thing has kind of collapsed. So this is obviously for a columnist, you love to be right when you're, I mean, I wrote like six, I wrote like six articles about these guys saying this is nonsense. You know, one of the founders like demanded a $200 million personal loan from banks in exchange for a piece of the IPO mandate. You know, like, like there are all these like, what? And yet, you know. Really smart people put their money into it. Like GIC, the Singaporean Southern Wealth Fund was in there. There's just this laundry list of high-profile private equity firms and stuff. They all put their money into it. It's bombed, and obviously I'm patting myself on the back at this point. Although, I'm sorry for the investors who lost all this money. And it's not strictly coronavirus-related, which is 
great these no, days. I great, feel yeah. like everything is coronavirus related these days. I'm sure you guys put out a lot of coronavirus related columns, but I'm sure the fatigue is starting to set in in Asia, at least here. It's just heating up. But but yeah, there are things that are happening besides <laughs> besides the virus. And that's one of them. Right. OK, cool. And then we usually start way back and get your whole story. So just to start, if you could tell me where you were born, a little bit what growing up was like, and maybe take us through your education years. Okay, so I'm from Washington, D.C., and I have one of the weirder journalism career resumes, so I'll just talk you through that. Well, I was born in Washington, D.C., Georgetown University Hospital, and I lived in Arlington, Virginia, a little suburb right across the river. I was not a very international person when I was a kid. I didn't leave the country, and well, unless you count Canada once. I didn't leave the country until I was like in my early 20s after college. Anyway, so I went to school, got an English degree. I graduate college. I go to Atlanta. I'm working in refugee resettlement. I'm going to cycle back to that in a bit. But then the main thing that got my journalism career started, I guess, was when I moved to Ecuador and started this beer company, weirdly enough, and it was in 1999. And the economy under a President Jamil Mawad, who had got a degree from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, embarked on this experiment where he liberalized, let the currency float against the dollar and open up some capital controls. And the whole economy collapsed. Everybody in Ecuador sold sucres, which was the currency then, and bought dollars. It was absolutely the worst time to start a beer company <laughs> in any country. And Ecuador was, Ecuador was up, not obviously destabilized by this. When I showed up, there, were, there was tear gas in the air. Um, why did you show up? <laughs> why, why did you choose Ecuador? Well, okay, it was one of the cheapest places you could learn Spanish, right? So I grew up, and D.C. is a pretty international town, right? And where I grew up was a very multilingual international neighborhood, like the children of refugees. It wasn't a wealthy neighborhood, Arlington, but you have a lot of the South Vietnamese officials that fled, moved to Arlington. It's got a huge Vietnamese population. There are Afghans, a lot of Middle Eastern, obviously Latin America. So there's all this mix. And here's Pete, you know, who can't speak anything except for English. My mom spoke three languages. I spoke one. So I, I, I wanted to learn Spanish. I was supposed to go to the Peace Corps originally. That was plan A. And I would have gone into China. I would have been like the fifth Peace Corps China group in Chengdu. But that fell through for personal reasons. I had to drop it. So I was like, well, I got to learn another language. So I saved up some money from waiting tables on the side. And I went down there and I was like, well, Ecuador, you could learn Spanish one-on-one for $4 an hour. That sounded okay to me. So I just went down there and started studying intensely. I, the whole beer company thing was an idea that happened after that. When I realized that $6,000 was not enough to do like motorcycle diary style driving all over Latin America, it wasn't quite going to get me there. And so I sure. plowed all my money in beer. And the point being is that being a small businessman, whatever, petty entrepreneur in a developing economy in the middle of like this unprecedented economic crash, really on this gut level, I didn't understand what had happened to me. You know, why was I carrying suitcases of cash? to exchange for dollars every day? Why was the exchange rate so volatile? What happens to the way people do business and think when they can't rely on these basic structures? I came out of the States pretty negative on American society and everything and the government. And going to Ecuador was just like this revelation, like, oh my God, well, this is what happens when the government doesn't take the garbage out, when the government just doesn't pay its bills, when the banking system is dedicated to just like shorting the country's own currency. This is this is how bad things can get. Right. And I didn't understand what had happened. And I was like, okay, well, I should maybe figure this out. Maybe I should do this. And I'd always liked writing. So that was kind of the beginning of a career that ended up with me going back to school, learning Chinese, moving to China and becoming a journalist. So you wrote some freelance pieces or what did you start to write? Yeah. In Oh, God, my first. Well, I mean, I've been writing in Atlanta, right? So I, I started out as a restaurant and arts reviewer 
at this little tiny magazine called Poets, Artists, and Mad Men, dedicated to the brokest types of readers you could find. So it wasn't that much <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, so that, that's how I got my start. And I was just trying to write about more interesting things than that. But yeah, when I went to Ecuador, I was mostly running this beer business and then kind of like writing a little bit on the side. Keep in mind, this is like way before, like the, the internet did not work very well in Ecuador at that time. There wasn't like VOIP, like what the conversation we're having now. It was just coming out and was extremely unstable. So literally like writing handwritten letters back and forth to the States that are traveling like for like three weeks. I mean, that was the way things were running then. <laughs> so, so the Ecuadorian... Internet was, yeah, it was not, not robust. I did not do a lot of journalism or writing at all in Ecuador. I was mostly running this beer business. I was doing graphic design. I was designing labels. I was coming up with, with brand names for these beers. That was what most of my creative stuff went into. And then my writing was dedicated to like coming up with these table tents to explain what these beers were. Ecuador has like four beers and they're all like rice beer, basically, like yellow lagers, really bad. And so we were making beers that were, you know, we had a stout and like a ales, you know, which were just not available at all in Ecuador. And we were trying to kind of build demand for this. They were more expensive, you know, than the Ecuadorian beers. So I had all this work cut out for me trying to build a local demand by explaining that they were much more alcoholic. Like that it was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> just like the English side of the table tent would be like, oh, it's a bitterness and it's got a little, the hops from friggin' whatever, someplace in Washington State, I'm sure, and blah, blah, blah. And then the flip side would just be like, okay, well, this is like four times. It was just like, this is strong beer, you know? That was how I tried to get at the local market, for better or worse. But yeah, I wasn't doing any reporting. I wrote like a couple memoir pieces and just sent them to my friends. Once sure. about a time, I worked at a local market. I was on a bus ride down to Cuenca and got drunk with these guys in the back. And they challenged me to join them the next day when they were selling like knockoff Nike track suits at this giant open market. I took them up on that <laughs> stuff and then went. we went out for karaoke and I won this karaoke contest in Cuenca, Ecuador after selling knockoff track suits. That I did write. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it was not like a particularly three-time time for my output. So the beer business doesn't go so great. You decide to bail on that. You go right back to school or what happens then? Yeah, it took a bit. Like, so I went back. I mean, I had obviously I was not making massive down payments on my student loans, writing for Poets, Artists, Mad Men, resettling refugees and uh, <laughs> beer in, in Ecuador. So I had to kind of just start generating funds. So like I moved back to the States, went to Boulder, Colorado, which was like the inverse of Quito, Ecuador in pretty much every way you can imagine. And just kind of like started doing jobs. I ended up being a technical writer for a software company, which is like painting a wall, watching the paint dry and then describing it. <laughs> Incredibly boring, but paid well. Then I paid off the loans. Yeah, then I went to grad school. I had to kind of reinvent myself because my resume made no sense to anybody. Like I was like, well, I'd like to be an international journalist. That's the career I want. They're like, yeah, well, you have not been preparing for this in the right way. You've been writing restaurant reviews and grant proposals and help documentation. But anyway, so I got an internship. I was quite old at this point, right? So I'm in my 30s and I'm applying for like journalism internships to kind of like make my grad school application look a little bit more international. And thank God I got one at the European Voice, which is now part of Politico. At the time, it was part of the Economist Group. They gave me a chance to go work for them in Brussels. Like I just did nothing but like 
write articles and research them. And unlike like restaurant reviews, I'm actually calling sources and you know doing investigation stuff. And that was when I really got the bug. Anyways, and that helped me get into grad school for international studies, well, Chinese studies eventually at the University of Washington. And then I was lucky again, I mean, because like an area studies degree, you know, for those who are considering them, these are not easy ways to get jobs. Like there's not a lot of demand for people who just kind of know a little bit about China, you know, and speak some Chinese. Yeah. My That's, my degree was my, my degree was Asian studies, so I know the feeling. Yeah, yeah. So so it's, it's exactly, and they they don't tell you when you go into these master's programs. Basically, you're there to pay money so they can float their PhD candidates in political science and whatnot. Basically, you're the cash uh, cow <laughs> that gets all these guys so they can be teaching assistants or whatever and pay their bills. But I mean, there are two areas where that sort of thing is useful. One is intelligence, obviously. So a lot of people will go and work for the government. And then the other is journalism. So I mean, I when I landed in China, I got a couple of scholarships that let me stay there, which was really critical because that was 2007, 2008, right before the financial crisis. And um, that was enough to kind of ground my Chinese a bit more and make it pretty serviceable. And also, I got a job, as you know, at China Economic Review right in October of 2008 when the bottom had just fallen out of the world economy. And it pretty much saved my ass. I don't know if that hadn't happened and I had to go back to the States, I could be, Lord knows what I was doing. A lot of area studies that people end up doing something completely unrelated. So, uh, but I was lucky enough to be able to land that position and build on it. And you had studied in China, I know, in Harbin for what, a year, and then presumably finished up your degree. And that's when you landed at China Economic Review. Did China Economic Review bring you to Shanghai? Had you gotten to Shanghai some other way? How did that work? I was in Chengdu. So the scholarship I was on taught me Chinese in Hangzhou and then Harbin. And then I moved to Chengdu in 2008 to do research. And I was researching the Chinese aviation industry and outbound direct investment separately. Chengdu is a great place. Was it more because of the industry or more because Chengdu is awesome that you decided to move well, to Chengdu? you know, I mean, I'm kind of an outdoorsy guy. So like um, East China is a bit low on outdoorsy wilderness stuff, but like Chengdu, like West Sichuan, right along the Tibetan Plateau is like on top of some of the most beautiful, unpopulated parts of China or, or less populated. Um, so right. I was hoping to go out there. And it also, honestly, you know, it's low on expats. So I figured like it would be better for my Chinese, you know, to not be in like Shanghai or Beijing. And in fact, the scholarship program I was on kind of encouraged me not to do study plans based on research in Shanghai or Beijing. Yeah, that was the theory. But it didn't quite work out that way because first they had 2008 was the year of the Olympics. It was the year of the Tibetan riots and it was the year of the earthquake. So, in fact, I was kind of trapped in Chengdu the entire time, kind of the way I'd been trapped in Quito, Ecuador, when I had my beer business. I expected to see all of Latin America. Never left Ecuador. But in this case, I barely left Chengdu because Western Sichuan was sealed off first because of the security measures against Tibetan protesters, a lot of whom live in West Sichuan. And then the earthquake destroyed a lot of these mountain roads. So you just couldn't get there. So that was a disappointment. But Chengdu was great. It was really interesting at the time, not as polluted as it is now. And it's this kind of interesting, purely Chinese city, not a lot of international trade connections, this huge domestic market, very relaxed attitude, people sucking down tea and beer and playing cards and mahjong and eating roasting hot spicy food. I was I was sad to leave, but leave I did <laughs> when I got a job because it doesn't generate a lot of jobs for expats, I'll say that. You had to kind of make your own work. 
Yeah, I passed through Chengdu for eight, nine days when I was a student in 2007. And with they had us learning uh, Sichuanese, which is such a silly thing to have people try to learn. I mean, I know it's, uh, you know, dialects are important, so that sort of thing. But one week is not enough time to learn a dialect. Learn to swear yeah. people. I think that's all the Sichuanese I got. But uh, how did you get linked up with uh, China Economic Review and Graham? Well, I had been, uh, oh my God, grammar and show. <laughs> Are we going to talk about grammar? So I was, when I was in, in Chengdu, I started really actively freelancing because I had figured out, as I told you, that like the area studies degree, you know, these scholarships, the multinationals in China were a lot more hard headed than that. They were going to hire Chinese people, you know, or expats with some hard practical skill, like, you know, being able to build control panels for nuclear reactor plants, stuff like that. Like they weren't just hiring people. Like, I know a little bit about China. And since I wanted to do like journalism or like investigative consulting sort of stuff, those two sort of flow together, like the analyst shops. And I couldn't just sit there and send out my resume from Seattle. You know, I was going to have to do some serious networking. Part of that involved freelancing. So I started writing mostly for the local chamber of commerce in Southeast China, the British Chamber of Commerce, I was writing for them. And then they put me in touch with CER of China Media, which was always commissioning stuff. Actually, it was their sub-publication, the European Voice. Not the European Voice. What was it? The European Chamber of Commerce magazine. Forget what it was called. Anyways, oh, they were all... Yeah, they, they used to produce that on a contract basis. I remember now. Right. I completely forgot about that. So I was doing freelancing, but I was, it wasn't directly for CER. I was going into that publication, which was pretty much all freelancers, whereas most of China Economic Reviews, you know, was written by staff writers. But anyway, so they knew who I was. And at one point, James Roy, who was the editor at the time, popped out to Chengdu and we had coffee and he was like, hey, I'm leaving this position. Might you be interested? And I'm like, I had to like wipe the drool off of my mouth. Like being a magazine editor <laughs> or go back to Seattle and make lattes, let me think. Um, so, so, yeah, that was how that happened. And I talked to Tim Burroughs, who you know, and he hired me. And it was all uphill from there, I would say. But, yeah, that was a fascinating experience. So I came in and they're like, OK, well, you're going to handle the supplements. And so there was like that pullout publication. What was it called? Focus. Focus. Yeah, focus. So that that was like the supplement pullout thing that was like kind of targeted for advertising. I mean, the articles were real, but it would be thematically oriented around a, a subject that had a lot of advertising potential, like business schools. You know, we do business education twice a year. I think like business schools basically paid for China Economic Review. They made so much money just off of the, that. It was just incredible. Anyway, so uh, I was running those and just getting started. And then James Rory formally quit. So the European Chamber magazine job was also open. And instead of replacing him, they just gave me both and 5,000 more RMB a month. And that was day two of my work, I think. <laughs> so I <was> like, okay. <laughs> Um, what was I going to say? No. So that was good. Kept me busy. I went in and I interviewed for an internship at CER in 2008. So I must have just missed you. I did not take the internship because, of course, it being CER, I'm pretty sure they didn't want to pay me anything. And I said yep. no and went to some other internship. Well, I mean, Graham was quite clever, right? I mean, and CER during its time was this kind of golden place where, you know, if you wanted some journalism experience, you know, you wanted something on your resume that was respected. And, you know, it was a monthly, it wasn't like a wire service. So you didn't have to be absolutely fluent in Chinese. It wasn't like you were reading 
Chinese newspapers in real time and then pounding out a reaction article immediately, like at Reuters. But like, so it, a lot of people, you know, whose Chinese was okay, you know, and had good writing skills and good analytical skills, you know, they could work there because you had the time on a monthly to kind of work on it that way. And there weren't many other games in town, right? I mean, like, it was the only monthly magazine focused on China economics and finance and stuff that was like high quality and not like state owned. I mean, everything else was, I won't name any names, but I mean, it didn't really have any rivals in its league and what it did for a time being won some awards you know it was really good i loved working there and like once i took it over i still miss print got to do all those fun things with illustrations and photos and fonts super cool so a lot of great people have gone through there as you know i have jamila anderlini at ft you know who else is out there anna swanson at the new york times andrew galbraith with me at reuters there's others me at reuters hudson lockett who was later who's at ft don weinland who's at ft a lot of reuters at ft But uh, how long were you there for and how long before you became editor? And do you have any good Graham Earnshaw stories? Oh, good Lord. I started out, I can't remember how quick my rise was, but I mean, there was always this turnover. Like once you were editor of China Economic Review, there was really no place to go but down. And it was also the most Graham facing job. So there tended to actually be a fair amount of turnover. So once the editor quit, whoever was like senior correspondent would just move into the role and so on and so forth. So, I mean, it took me a couple of years for the churn to just kind of gradually move me up the food chain. Can't remember, but I was only, I was only editor for like one year before I went to Reuters. And that was when things had started to go fairly badly anyways. Uh, well, the, the big Graham story, this is all in the public record, is one that was never just, reported. Just to take a moment. So Graham Earnshaw was the publisher of China Economic Review, and he was kind of an outlandish character. Well, no, and, and Graham had been like a big shot at Reuters before, right? He had been like, I think he was like in charge of the Asia thing briefly. And he was in Tiananmen Square in the protests, and he had tons of stories about that. Spoke beautiful Cantonese and Mandarin. And a very clever, clever man, although quirky, played the guitar, still sends us links to his music that he puts online. Oh, and yeah, I mean, he started this business. I think in the end, he just got kind of bored with it, just kind of the expat entrepreneur disease that I've seen elsewhere that like just he was trying to use CER as this cash cow in the end to like fund more fun things. And that was kind of where it all blew up in his face. But yeah, no question, a a clever guy. But there's a million stories about him. Like when you're an entrepreneur in like this kind of gray area, legal environment in China, it's really impossible to function without crossing some blurry lines here and there. I mean, so most of the stories about him would relate to, oh, he had this business in Japan. I forget, God, how did that work? Contract with Xinhua News, all this stuff. You can read about it in the Wall Street Journal. James already wrote a bunch of stuff about Graham. Well, not Graham. Well, not, yeah, Graham didn't really come up. Graham was very good at, as, as a former journalist. He knew well how to stay out of the journalist spotlight. So he was very good at getting not covered. But his masterpiece of getting not covered, I mean, the most interesting Graham story is the Abbott Labs short sale attack. Do you remember that? I was working there during the whole time that was going on. Yeah, yeah, that was just nuts. So I'll tell the the listeners just because this is just a great example of you think the media is catching everything that happens. This is an example of a story that was never really reported at the time. It was a massive story, (laughs) but just because of the way things work, like it never hit the wire. So basically, Graham, one of the things he wanted to fund around 2010, 2011, if you recollect, there was a surge in delistings and fraud at Chinese companies which had listed in the United States. 
of which this current case with Luckin is somewhat reminiscent. I mean, a common thing they did was exaggerate their sales or lie about their financials. So there was just tons of companies going down. At one point, like 40% of the shareholder lawsuits in the U.S. were targeting Chinese corporate defenders, I think. And all these companies got delisted. Um, it provoked this huge debate between the SEC and the PCAOB and all these American accounting regulatory bodies and the Chinese government, this huge mess. In the midst of this, Graham perceives like a business opportunity. So he'd already spun off this thing called China Economic Review Company Reports or something like that. I forget what the product was. But basically, this is going to be a bespoke research service, not published, but given to like hedge funds and whatever trading ideas of like, here's this company you can buy, you know, or, or short or whatever. Um, and from there, he started going into short selling reports, right? And the short selling industry is quite interesting. So you can either be a short seller, in which case you like take your position in the company, you do your research yourself, and then you publish the report and try and flog it to the media. And if it gets picked up, ideally, the shares go down and you make a bunch of money from the shorting position. I'm not quite clear on whether Graham took positions, but Graham was basically like doing reports for shorters. I think. And, and he had some hits. He hit like a printing company, a couple of others, and just like had a couple of research going, running around, looking at these Chinese firms that look sketchy and then publishing these reports. And you would sell them to the short sellers, right? You'd sell them and say, look, these guys are screwy and you guys can take a position based on this and then I'll do the publishing. This was popular with short sellers, especially because the Chinese government hates short sellers. But if like the person doing the report and the short seller are separated, the short selling company has a bit of space. Anyway, so he's doing this business. Anyway, so right. he decides one day to go after Abbott Labs, right, which is this huge, enormous conglomerate. I don't even know what the market cap is, but he specifically goes after their milk powder product. And as you know, I mean, basically, he's decided he was going to do stuff about Chinese milk powder. There have been all these scandals with melamine and, and adulteration in the milk and children had died. And people gone to jail. And so he tests all these things of milk powder. And he says he's going to use the Abbott Labs Similac as like the gold standard against which they were going to measure. And instead, he discovers that this Similac According to the test that he sent out, this can of Similac that he bought missed all of these standards and was actually this really poor quality milk powder, according to what he found. There's so, one detail. He, he was telling some crazy stories, and apparently even one of the milk powders had like half of a condom in it or something like that. Something that was so over the top, I was like, I don't know if this is for real or not. Um, but anyway, please continue. Well, yeah, I mean, so it was my first day at Reuters. I just left, and like Brian Rhodes, who's now managing editor at CMP, but then was running Reuters Greater China, pulls me over and he says, hey, what, do you, what do you know about these CR reports product? Everybody knew Graham. I've got Graham calling me on the phone trying to flog this report about Abbott Labs. And I take a look at the report and I'm like, oh my God. The headline I think was Abbott Labs, a recipe for infant malnutrition. That was the headline, you know, and he had all this damning evidence and comments from scientists in the report. And he notes as well that he'd informed the Shanghai Customs Authorities about this. And then he has like a separate report published by some poor intern that had gotten brought on and promoted to like the head of CR Reports Marketing or something. Yeah, like he, he had he had been running various business development stuff and <laughs> kind of got like, saddled like with this. But anyways, he, he got named in the lawsuit <laughs> afterwards because like Graham had him put out this report. You know, his name was on it. And then there was a separate report on the CR website saying, based on this, you know, we recommend shorting or not holding or selling the stock because Abbott Labs does X number of million dollars of sales in China. And if the Chinese government goes after them for this, they're going to be screwed. And that was the report he pushed out. And I mean, the main thing, if you're a short seller is you can be 100% right. Absolutely right. Everything you say can be just God's own truth. 
and you can still fail. Nothing compels people to sell shares in a company just because of some bad report is out there on the internet. Sometimes people will sell, sometimes they don't. And you've had people, famous shorters who've been right for years, couldn't convince anybody, you know, and they lost money because they just couldn't move the, the shares. So it's key for the short seller, once they've got their position, once everybody has got their shorts in place, you know, to get this story out and promote it as much as possible in the hope that the share price will move, right? And so Graham is starting to call all his fine feathered friends in the Chinese journalism community, including Brian Rhodes, Andy Brown of the Journal, people of whatever. He knew everybody. And he's, he's trying to shovel this report at people and nobody will friggin' touch it. <laughs> you know, the language is really, really strong for one thing, which is, okay, it's a short seller report. It's potential libel if you on pass this or, or report it, especially like Hong Kong and British law. So like there's this huge legal liability. Every single person who was talking to Graham had worked with him. So everybody had like a personal involvement with the guy or personal relationship. And it was just a mess. And every single person passed. It did not go anywhere. Not only that, I mean, so ordinarily when you're doing a short report, it's very dangerous to just pick up and repeat the allegations because just because you're repeating somebody else's allegations, if you repeat them in print and amplify them, you're still liable, right? You can be. But you, you can cover like a stock market reaction, right? If shares fall promptly or deeply in reaction to a report, because that's news, you can just describe that and say this report came out and the shares fell down. That's one way you can go into it. Another is if the company comes out and makes some sort of statement and says, like, there's a bunch of bullshit, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you can cover their statement because that's on the record, right? So you say, well, they respond to this short report. This is what the short report says. And then those are the two ways you can kind of get into it more safely. In this case, nothing happened, which was really amazing. The share prices didn't twitch, you know, which was incredible because in China, there's this massive disaster. Unlike the Western press, the Chinese press completely picked all of this up, right? I don't know if you saw it, but like it was everywhere, 21st century Harold, uh, who else? Nanfang Zhuomo, you name it. Everybody's like, oh my God, here's another milk scandal, and this one with Abbott Labs. So there's all over in Chinese. And uh-huh. in a subsequent lawsuit, which you can find online now, you can see all the record that Abbott Labs filed against Graham up there on the record. You know, they were saying they lost so much money off of this. Nobody was buying any of their milk in China for a while. So they lost all this money. So there's this huge direction, and there was just not a ripple of it in the foreign press, just nothing. And the thing was that Abbott Labs said nothing in English. They had, I think, like somebody in Singapore, some media relations person who probably got fired, put up a denial for like five seconds and it was immediately taken down before I could even capture it. And I just heard that hearsay that somebody had denied it from Abbott. I was like, sweet, we can write about that. Because obviously I thought it was fascinating, we should write about it. And all the Chinese Russians I wasn't aware about at this point. But yeah, no, there was nothing. Abbott said absolutely nothing. And so there was nothing he could grab onto. All you had was this crazy report that was potentially libelous. It was out on PR Newswire, right? So it was out there on the internet, but it wasn't moving the stock price. Abbott hadn't responded. And then everybody just decided not to touch it with a 10-foot pole. (laughs) But, you know, once the smoke had cleared away and Abbott had mopped up, then they started going after everybody, as you know. I mean, you were in the office, right? I mean, like Chinese reporters are like crawling through, (laughs) like breaking into Chinese CR and like trying to interview people, right? Uh, yeah, I don't remember anybody coming in and trying to interview us. I, I mostly remember what happened internally with the staff. I mean, the foreigner who was involved, you know, left pretty quickly. And he, he got out from under it after some pretty serious legal threats from Abbott. But he ended up just fine. And as far as the rest, I mean, I think that was kind of the end of the report section, I remember. It was basically <laughs> CR in the end, I think. I mean, it got gutted after that. Really? Well, I mean, just the 
print ad sales just weren't what they used to be. The inserts and stuff that you mentioned at the beginning that were such a cash cow were just not doing anything. You know, the Chinese offshore quarterly investing magazine that I edited for a little while, like, just wasn't getting advertised. Well, because like there was used a duplicate, right? Like, one of the sales guys that had been running that just went and started something almost identical to it with the same graphic designers. Exactly. <laughs> that was yeah. <laughs> was really confused. There was, like, China offshore investment <laughs> and China offshore something like and they had the same fonts like they did the same thing with uh, the mice a publication they also ripped oh, really? off yeah so things were going well on many fronts and i think there were some other like business attempts at one point he was looking at investing in hemp oil again like yeah. this is what he told me I, I have no idea how far he actually got into any of these business ventures but you know me and don would joke like it was unclear at times whether china economic review was the main venture or a side venture at very his points. Yeah, it was very clever businessman, right? He would use the quality of the brand and he would slap it on all these other things that were much cheaper to produce and more profitable. So like those business guides, you know, like the China business guide they would put out. They just put the CER like it was a telephone directory. <laughs> you know, they basically translated a bunch of like Chinese companies' addresses and telephone numbers into English. Were they useful? Who knows? But like they could do all this marketing with that and sell that, sell advertising and those things and say, oh, we're passing around all these business hotels. China Economic Review was pretty low margin relative to the other things. But like, you know, one of the salespeople was explaining once, he's like, you have to have a media empire. There's no point in just having one publication. As a salesperson, you have to be able to like mix and match. Like we can place your ad here and we can give you this event and all these sort of things. You have to be able to package all sorts of stuff. I and mean, Graham understood that very, very well. He was always replaying the brand. So like, oh, well, we can upsell you a little bit. You can advertise in our pullout and, you know, we'll give you a direct mailing through our emails and we can sponsor an event and blah, blah, blah. And we can put it in these other magazines that we also put out. We've got European Chamber of Commerce and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it, it was just, he kind of like demoralized his sales staff. I mean, one of the top saleswoman there who was just closing, closing, closing with all the business schools. He let her go. Well, he didn't fire her. She left. But like, he would just antagonize the people at the top, the people who dealt with them. And then they would leave. People would get to be head of sales or head of CR or whatever. And it would be like the clock would start ticking. That was my impression, at least. Yeah. That was yeah. what this fall off was, that he'd lost his good salespeople. And then he'd want to save money so he wouldn't replace them and try and consolidate. There's just this constant shrinking of like, oh, I can just like, keep that salary but like they stopped producing revenue which is sort of a problem right so yeah i remember i showed up the first time i met you i was just starting and i believe on my first day maybe a day out or two after that you told graham you quit so it was kind of similar to when you started where it was like oh pete's in charge but day two like pete's already on his way out the door but we met i remember we had like a going away party for you in the conference room i remember right. yeah there was a bit of bad blood between you and graham which i guess i would understand a bit more about the longer i worked there although i will say i have no ill will towards graham and like we had a, a very we would have like intense debates and stuff like that and probably yell at each other sometimes but in the end graham always did right by me so i have no mm. complaints i mean he's a huge character but yeah no i never got on his bad you know, side we uh, the other day, like a couple of years ago we buried the hatchet but no it was just tragic you know because it could have been this great thing his aspiration was to have like this chinese version of the economist and i really right felt that, and like, if 
that that was possible, but he just refused to invest in it and was constantly watering it down. And then at a certain point, like CR became better known for these weird side products than like the core. You know, so that was my great frustration. It was just kind of like, yeah, be a character, whatever. But like, this is this beautiful thing. And we are just like watering it down into nothing, which is, I mean, now it's just kind of like a website. Articles go up every once in a blue moon. And so, yeah, it was just kind of a tragic thing. Yeah, I mean, I became editor when it was transitioning to online only. And me and Don, and we had, like, Suzanne would write a piece occasionally, and we had, like, half a researcher, and I forget what. And for, like, a good six months of it, we made a good run of it, and we got posts up every day. But it was just, like, a total grind to try to do daily web stories when it had been a monthly magazine. But basically, when he told me I was being put in charge and we were going to fold the print side of it, like you said, the clock started ticking. Like I, I could see the way things were headed and I had to get the fuck out of there. So we had a good run, but it was not sustainable at all. I'm looking um, at the I was website gonna... now. The top story is from July 2019. <laughs> okay. I was going to say my first day, I remember I was tasked with writing about Walmart had, had to pull some high-end pork off its shelves because it was being sold past its expiration date. And I had written some piece about it and I give it to you who I don't know. And you're like sitting on your ball that one of those balls in the corner and like I remember squeezing one of those stress balls where it's like a pig or something and the eyeballs and the ears pop out when you squeeze it I remember that Um, that was good and I had come from a newspaper in South Carolina and was writing this analysis piece and you were like do you really think that people are going to give a shit about what happens with this and this is really going to affect Walmart's business overall and you like threw your stress thing on the desk and I was like well, I, I guess not. I guess I thought that much about it. But uh, yeah, I remember it being very intense the first day. <laughs> Heaven forfend. <laughs> I can't even remember that. Oh, I'm sorry. But I mean, I think it was a stressful time. Like I said, it was like right around the time you quit. And yeah, and then you went to Reuters. And honestly, that made a light bulb go off in my head. I was like, oh, wow, this is a pathway you can take. I should try to do something like this. So you end up going to Reuters and tell me a little bit about your stint in Shanghai running the markets team. Yeah, that was fun. I ended up running the markets and the macro team eventually, which was up in Beijing. Reuters is a wire service, so it's kind of the big time. And that was very interesting going from like a little tiny, flexible team to like this giant bureaucratic operation with all these resources and real-time journalism, which I'd never done before. But, you know, it was just this huge change. And then you, know, you call analysts, you call people, they pick up the phone. You know, it was much harder to get access to the China Economic Review because people didn't care, but they cared about Reuters. So that was cool. Having access to tons of data in this trading terminal and stuff was fun. You got to cover the stock market crash in 2015, which was amazing. Just like if you're going to be running a markets team, you want to be doing it during a crash because while your job might be at risk eventually, but like in the meantime, it's just this adrenaline rush of just watching everything come unhinged and people going crazy. And as a journalist, it's just like one of the best experiences. You were at Reuters during a time when they were trying 
trying to open up the market, I remember, and there was some cross-border trading scheme and things like that. They were trying to get up and running, and around the same time, this huge crash happened. And yeah, I remember being out with you at a bar and you saying like, oh, this is probably the most important job I'll probably have. <laughs> a little bit bombastic, but at the same time, wasn't entirely off base. I mean, you were leading a team of, you know, I forget, four or five people at first, and then it got much larger when they put you in charge of macro as well, marshalling all these people to cover this financial meltdown. I guess, how do you feel about it in retrospect? Because I feel like these things, it's incredibly important at the time. A lot of money changes hands over it. Do the markets have good memories? Like, do you think this period still looms large in the mind of people in China and people in the markets? Well, I'll tell you one thing. If you look at the Chinese stock indexes, like a chart of them, you'll notice that they have never recovered from 2007, 2008. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's a story that continues to sting. And there's this word in Chinese, taolao, which means you're stuck in a loss-making position in the stock market. It tells you a lot about like Chinese trading psychology that people will rather just like hold on to their shares forever than sell at a loss which is sort of the problem China has when benchmarks get up to a certain level. There's all these people who are tau loud, who are stuck, who then sell out because they break even and they want to leave the market. But yeah, China, is, they've made a lot of progress, I think, recently in terms of reforming things. But the interesting thing about markets and the reason I think it's important, and I'm sorry if I'm being bombastic again, you know, you have this struggle in China, this giant struggle to give ordinary people a safe place to put their money so much ordinary retail money is in the stock market compared to institutional money. But in general, your average Chinese person doesn't own stocks and doesn't trade stocks and wants nothing to do with them because of experiences like 2015. And it feeds all these distortions, right? Because what they do put their money into is real estate, real estate, real estate, real estate, real estate. <laughs> There's been these attempts to kind of make it into a better market for ordinary people because then they can put their retirement money in there and that money can be available to invest in cutting edge firms, you know, and startups and stuff like that. And, you know, this stable way and the way that you can put your pension money in it. But it's extremely just dangerous right now to put your pension money into the Chinese stock market um, right. because it's so volatile. It's one of those markets you have to time. Like if you buy it at the top of like a crazy rally, we're not back to the top of the 2015 rally either. We've never gotten back there. But I don't know. I mean, it brings in a little bit of everything. Like China's a desire to kind of direct the flow of capital to the companies it thinks are important. Its need to help its companies use stock markets to kind of swap out debt for equity by doing secondary issues and stuff like that. IPOs like to raise equity instead of debt. It serves all these functions, but like all this meddling and mucking around with it has produced this thing that's extremely unreliable. And it's amazing. The world's second largest economy still doesn't have an equity market that does really what it's supposed to do. What it does instead is swings up and down in reaction to monetary policy, policy directives from the government, these quick hit kind of day trading attitude of people moving in and out of positions quite quickly. The whole thing is unreliable. And watching the government kind of struggling with that during a crash, keeping in mind that they produced this huge rally in 2015 before the crash. And that was the state media coming out and saying, rah, rah, we're in the middle of a secular long-term bull market. That was just telling everybody in China that the government stands behind the share prices, which were already ballistically high, going up even further. And people like borrowed whatever money they could and put it in the stock market. And then the whole thing blew up. Yeah, this is around the time when I would go out to lunch and walk down the Hutong alleyways. And you'd see some guy who owns like a convenience store, like 
out front of it on his laptop with stock charts up, investing in stocks. And you're like, things have gotten a little out of hand. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, it's a, I wanted to write just kind of like a big summary story about that struggle, but haven't gotten around to it yet. I'll do it with the next time we have a crash. It's interesting that right now in the middle of all this Chinese stock markets, they're actually the, the best performing in the world, which is, which is kind of amusing. I mean, they're not good, but they're not as bad as everybody else, which I don't quite know what to make of. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, look. I just remember like during the rally, all the editors in New York or whatever being like, okay, well, we've got this huge stock market rally. Let's talk about how it's going to trickle into the rest of the economy. And the rest of the economy, if you remember in 2015, was doing badly. You know, in particular, the real estate market was correcting still, I think, or still soft. House prices had fell. The government had put in all these policies to kind of restrain house price inflation. I was just going to say, this is when I started as a trainee on the econ desk. And so you were sending me out. You were in Shanghai and I was like talking to people on the team, but I kept getting sent out to like housing projects and things like that to try to find color about how the economy wasn't doing well and real estate wasn't doing well and things like that. And of course, it being Beijing, like it wasn't that bad. Like China not doing well is still like not that bad. Well, I mean, the narrative they wanted to tell was that the stock market is good and therefore there must be this trickle over into the rest of the economy. What was amazing was there wasn't. It was completely disconnected. Everything else kept on doing quite badly, but the stock market was going bananas. And in fact, it seemed that there was a relationship that the government was trying to kind of egg this rally because people had to make money somewhere and they were losing money on housing for once. So nothing else was working. So like there was this rally that was sort of the inverse of what was happening everywhere else. But it was very difficult explaining to people like you've got this huge stock market, it's rallying like crazy and it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. If you don't have money directly in the stock market, your situation is not slightly changed. And then the crash, same thing. They're like, oh, it's crashing. Everything is dying. I'm like, no, it's pretty much just puttering along the way it was doing before. You've got people who borrowed heavily to go into the market are in trouble. But like, if you sat this out on both sides, you know, it's not going into like industrial production. It's not feeding into inflation. It's not feeding into retail sales. You can find anecdotes of anything. But in terms of the stats, you know, anyways, that, that made an interesting story because there was this whole other story people wanted to tell that just wasn't a story. It was quite interesting. I just wanted to go back to your line about me saying that that was the most important job I ever had. And I mean, it was certainly like the most high profile, I think, journalist position. If you're on top of like this Chinese stock market crash was the story of the year in a lot of ways around the world. So I hadn't been on something global like that before. Um, But I mean, interestingly, and this is kind of a wider comment, I look back at like all the stuff I've written and the most important thing I ever wrote, (laughs) you know, was not a journalism story at all. It was a grant proposal, which I wrote in Atlanta at my first job. Just back up a little bit. I mean, ordinarily with journalism, what you're looking to do with the story is either titillate people, entertain them, you know, give them some information. Or you want to get somebody in trouble and get somebody fired for doing bad things, especially with financial journalism. How much social good are you providing by feeding stuff to hedge funds and rich people moving money around? That's always kind of a question you have, because obviously writing on stock markets is not the same as like human rights reporting or whatever. You know, I mean, do people change their minds based on what they read in the news? Are we changing the way people think about things? That's always a question when you write something. Because you don't know. It's hard to tell. The story goes out there and people retweet it or not. But did you really change the conversation? It's a rare story where you get that sort of feeling that, yeah, wow, things were going this way and now they're going that way. And it's because of what I wrote. But I mean, like in Atlanta, I wrote a grant proposal once. We conceived of this jobs program for refugees that was going to help plug them into this vocational training program that hadn't existed. And we wrote it and it got funded. 
And it ran for years and years and years. For all I know, it's still running. But I mean, I could see people going into that, literally refugees, people coming out of some of the worst wars, coming from Bosnia, we had a bunch of Somalis. They'd come off the airplane and be able to go straight into these programs. Like ordinarily, they'd go to McDonald's or they were at the airport doing this kind of low-end stuff. And this program, it was interesting because people were coming straight out of war zones, go straight into IT, computer networking, stuff like that, right into these technical degrees. We expected everybody to go in and, and take these simple things, and they went right up the value chain. Like it worked, and it worked for a while. And I still look back and be like, I, I've never had the satisfaction from any journalism story I've ever written compared to like that, which helped desperate people have more money. And it was read by like a committee of five people. Like nobody ever saw the document outside of some government agency that was approving the funds. But I always kind Kind of whenever I get bombastic, as you put it, and start talking about journalism, I try to remember that there are other ways to make a difference with writing. Definitely. Even when you do write some big bombshell report, people are often loath to admit if you've forced a difference. Governments, certainly in Asia, are never going to admit if you had an impact. Like, they're totally stone-faced. I mean, the best you can hope for in the U.S. is if, like, they call congressional hearings over a story you've written. But at the end of the day, um, it's kind of hard to tell. Even if you do make a difference, you may never know it. Well, especially as a foreign correspondent in another country. Right. I mean, there's all this reporting on China, and like some of the premise seems to be that like if we write the right stories and expose the CCP's wrongdoing or whatever, that like it's going to be Reuters, the New York Times, or Wall Street Journal or whatever that is going to drive political change inside the country. And I am a skeptic. And I don't want to set up a straw man. I don't think like anybody, the great reporters out there, like, well, you know, if we just write hard enough, we're going to prompt a revolution. We really are on the sidelines in terms of like what Chinese people are thinking about and what's going to happen. You're an observer and you're kind of reporting to people outside of China. But inside the country, you know, it's very difficult to see one big caveat. The one thing that the foreign press has done has been like reporting things that have been covered up on like, you know, environmental disasters, toxic waste spills. Stuff like that. That's the area where I think you've seen a clear track record of foreign media writing articles that the Chinese people see. And so like, okay, our government is lying to us and things that can, you know, save lives, save people from poisoning. Like, that's one thing. It's just kind of interesting to think about how effective you are and where you can be effective and like make a difference in people's lives for the for the better. So I wanted to next ask you about breaking views because now you are an opinion columnist. You guys do a lot of actual reporting in what you write. It's very corporate oriented and things like that. You're opinion columnists who write about corporate finance, but you're not writing columns about human rights in China and things like that. That's to the extent that anything has a financial impact, we can write about it. I mean, like what is happening in Xinjiang, for example, is having a financial impact on the economic performance of Xinjiang. And I wrote about that. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, they revised their GDP growth target down like two points. So, I mean, that's an interesting story. Apart from the human rights issues there, you know, the questions and valid concerns that are brought up. There's the fundamental argument by the Chinese government that they're doing vocational training, that this is a mechanism for upgrading Uyghurs' financial prospects by giving them better Mandarin and technical skills. Okay, you know, they should be held to that, though. You can say that this is a terrible way to do it. I mean, I don't think there's any argument that there's been an underinvestment in education of Uyghurs and stuff in that area, like all the resources have gone to the Han immigrants um, for the most part. So like now the government is saying, okay, we're going to do this kind of crash course where we're going to brainwash them out of being religious fanatics, which is ugly. And the upside is these people are going to come back out and they'll be better prepared to work in the workforce. But I mean, there's very little signs 
that they're serious about that. I find it an incredible stretch to believe that any of these guys are going to graduate with better Mandarin and technical skills and, you know, compete with the Han Chinese in Xinjiang for jobs. Nor do I think that having this giant kind of prison state out there is going to produce economic vibrancy in general. And so you go and look at the economic indicators. And I mean, people should just watch what happens because I, I have my doubts that even economically, these extremely ugly measures will pay off. So that's kind of what I wrote. Interesting way to come at it. I've never thought about that. But I guess what I was trying to say is, I mean, you are an opinion columnist. You basically crossed over from writing about what you were writing about purely factually to writing about it with a point of view. So I was just wondering how, especially now that you've done it for a few years, how you feel about the difference between those two things, how you view the difference. Do you prefer being able to express some opinion? How do you feel about both sides of it? Well, I mean, I'm an opinionated guy, so I like oppressing opinion and just like cocktail parties, whatever, as you know, you know, <laughs> nobody would say he's right. not opinionated. So, um, you know, when I first went into it, I was like, oh, opinionated, I'll be able to write these things that I've been thinking about Chinese policy and economics, and I won't have to like call an analyst and get that analyst quote, you know, which everybody hates. Can we just get a quote in here? Like, I don't have to get a quote. Great. I can just look at the numbers and, you know, I can talk to people. I can talk to analysts, but I don't have to quote them. I am supposed to be the analyst. So that's liberating. It also comes with a big helping of responsibility, I think. And it's interesting because like breaking views, is, as the name kind of implies, is like quick reactions to breaking news. It's extremely fast. Like we will have a news peg in the morning and I will have an article out about it, like an analytical article with an opinion and ideally a punchy headline, even clickbaity a little bit, you know, and it's and like, be out the, like three, four hours. It's incredibly high stress. And you can be it's wrong. It's the definition then, of a hot take. But it's not like a hot take on like politics or something. It's a hot take on like finance where I have to break out spreadsheets and do like returns on investment calculations. And, you know, some, some of that shit gets kind Harry. And you can be wrong, of course, which is fine. But you know, as, as a columnist, you're wrong forever. The difference between like writing a report, you know, you write the report, you describe what happened, you quote the analyst with their opinions, analysts say. And that's it. As long as like the data is not a correction, nobody's going to blame you for writing a story where an animist comes out with a completely asinine explanation for why this asset price did this or that or whatever. Like nobody blames the reporter for quoting them. But like as a columnist, you know, it's your fault and it's out there permanently. So like people could go on the internet and search and I've written some great articles. thought I was right on Luckin, but I've definitely been wrong about other things. And that's there forever. I think a lot of reporters think they're like, oh, well, you know, when I retire, I'll just be a columnist and just kind of write my opinions about things. But I mean, at least at Breaking Views, the rigor of the model and the timing and stuff makes it actually quite intense and high stress because it's supposed to be this premium article, premium content. You know, people are making decisions. It's marketed to like CEOs and CFOs and hedge fund traders, stuff like that, you know, and it's kind of on you to make sure you don't write something boneheaded. But at the same time, it has to be an opinion. If like you write an article that no sane person would disagree with, you didn't write an opinion article, you just kind of channeled consensus. And that's not really what people want. So the balance is to write something that could be disagreed with, where there is like another side to the story that somebody might take without writing something that is just so leaking, full of holes or based on inaccurate assumptions that like it just really should never have been out there in the first place. To the difference that you mentioned, like in some ways, it's less different than I thought it would be. I think these days in one key way, I mean, if you look at like Reuters where you know, on the news site where there's this you need to have a nut graph explaining the importance of this and so on and so forth. And Reuters has these pieces that are analytical. And those are very close to what Breaking Views does analytically. There will be a point that is being made, a position that is being taken and supported with facts. 
there'll be some quotations, but it's nowhere near as objective as just like these purely descriptive pieces of like, this person said this in public, and this is what happened to the share price of the company he runs. Goodbye. And that's fine. That's fine. But you know, these days, information is not at a premium. People get tons of information. Some of it is fake news, some of it is real news, but it's very difficult to charge a premium for, for just info because even if it's a scoop, even if it's an exclusive, it's exclusive for like five minutes before somebody rips it and puts it out on social media or something like that. It's very difficult to charge readers just for data unless it's like something in this niche that's easy to control so on and so forth. So I mean, what readers want is somebody who kind of like sorts through the information for them and says, okay, this is what's important. This is not. They don't want to drink from a fire hose. They want the media to take all this information, come out and give them the portion that's digestible in 300, 400 words and tell them what to make of it. That's the reader demand. And so people are complaining like everybody is, is looking at the pundits and not reading the news and thinking for themselves. I mean, that's true, I think, to an extent. It's not necessarily a good thing, but that's the reason for it, is that the readers want opinion. That's why the opinion page is like a key part of a brand, any magazine, newspaper brand. China Economic Review had an opinion page. And they usually generate a lot of flow because whether people agree with it or not, they want to look at the logic and, and argument and kind of like have things parsed for them. And they might come to an alternate conclusion. I love reading people I disagree with. I constantly look at stuff and be like, oh, that's completely asinine. But I, you know, I'm definitely reading them all the time because it provokes a reaction in myself. But I think like the conventional news operations who don't call themselves opinion are putting out a lot of stuff that is analytical, which is just basically like responsible opinion. <laughs> You know, as a point of view, it's not just objective. So to that extent, it's not that different. One thing I was curious about is how much you hear back from your readers, if you hear back more on the opinion side than you heard back, say, on the factual side. Do, do people email or when you meet with executives, have they seen your stuff or do you hear back in any sort of way? Sometimes, sometimes. Breaking Views is a niche. It is behind a very high paywall. So our readership is not huge. I will hear from people, but it's not like putting out an op-ed on like one of the big newspapers where there's you know millions of people coming in. You know, obviously put out stuff on Twitter and there'll be a bit more feedback on that. But the thing is that like people rarely email about stuff they like, right? So usually you'll hear email and you're like, ah, it's crap. Where the hell did you get that idea from? <laughs> Which is fine. That's actually quite useful. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, like our readership are not people who have a huge amount of time to go on Twitter and write letters. I mean, the reason our pieces are so short, the theory is that our target readership is extremely busy. So they can just digest a quick take on this M&A deal or whatever and either agree with it or disagree with it, but kind of have the basic facts and the framework for thinking about the deal. And they can go on to their meeting or whatever and say, oh, well, I read this break and use thing that said this. I don't really think it's right, but blah, blah, blah. And that's valuable. Definitely. So the next bit is more fast-paced questions. Do you feel ready? I feel ready. The first question is, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? And I mean for work, not for your own personal edification. So not The Onion. <laughs> I, my, my, I look at The Onion every day. I look at The Economist pretty regularly, but they are a weekly. On China, at least, Caixin is doing quite well. So I will usually check them in the morning. And then the next is, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? You said The Onion, so that's one. Do you have anything else you want to shout uh, yeah, out? Yeah, mostly I'm, I read so much news during the day. I'm generally trying to do not text. <laughs> so sure. I will look at something visual. There's this crazy artificial intelligence that just goes through and pulls cool photographs. It's called Archelect. 
it's got a really good Instagram feed of just like random photos and art that this AI identifies as being beautiful. And they usually are really cool looking. And this totally random selection of little short gifs. I'll look at that sort of thing. You know, cool. I mean, I like looking at Arts and Letters Daily is a compendium of more intellectual uh, academic writing. It's aldaily.com. That is it's a compiler, but it's really, really good. So that's like a good way to get reviews of long dead authors and just all sorts of stuff like what to read essays literary critics those are two good ones i've never heard of those things i'll have to check them out and then is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't specifically related to your job yeah well i mean history definitely but like specifically like classical ancient history like bc stuff especially like classical greece i think is really interesting and weirdly accessible if you read like thucydides quite, quite interesting stuff. And it's always nice to look back to these times when technology was nowhere near where it is now, and then kind of read what people thought about politics and stuff and see where the commonalities are. It's just really interesting if you look at the fall of Athenian democracy and then compare it to what's happening in the United States right now, all these corollaries, it's quite stimulating. So I always find that kind of a reality check. It's so easy these days to think of the human condition as like advancing at leaps and bounds and that humans have become very different from the way they used to be. The technology has definitely changed, but the politics, not at all. <laughs> and then the next question is, how do you manage your work-life balance or do you even believe in it? Oh, I definitely believe in it. And I love the work from home thing. My wife might disagree that she thinks I'm a workaholic. <laughs> but I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, it's odd right now because I'm in the house and my young child is here and he's just nine months old and he's demanding some attention from me that I'm not always able to give him. So that balance has been interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't work on the weekends unless I have to. And that's the nice change I guess going from the wire to opinion is that like I don't have to jump up and cover interest rate cuts on a Saturday anymore. We're okay with writing about the interest rate cut on Monday. <laughs> so I'd say in general, my work-life balance as a columnist is pretty good. That is one of the big upsides. Right. I imagine it helps living on an island in nature. You can literally leave the city behind. Yeah, that's no, great. And it's such a weird place. I told you about the cows, but it's the, the oddest place to commute to a giant global financial center, huge stock market, 7 million people from a fishing village. It's just the strangest thing. Waywo is a strange place. Yeah, I think I told you the one time I was staying with you out there, I missed the ferry at, I forget one time, so I'd wait till the 3 a.m. ferry and oh, yeah. was very drunk and ended up just like taking the wrong turn because you get off the ferry and it's this roundabout and there are several roads leading off of this roundabout and it take the wrong roundabout and you just end up wandering through the jungle and like make some huge circuit. And then I end up back at the same traffic circle and I'm like, what? What happened? Where am I? Oh, my God. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> well, that's what happens to you when you take the 3 a.m. ferry. You deserve what you get. <laughs> that's true. The next question is, is Twitter important to you? Yeah, yeah. But honestly, like Trump has kind of revitalized it. But we're always kind of competitive, like in terms of opinions. So like I've got feeds, tweet deck, looking at all the rivals and what they're saying. It's this kind of conversation out there. Different people have different attitudes. You don't have to be on Twitter. But for me, you know, there's all these kind of China hands rampaging on Twitter and they'll put okay. up their research data and they'll be screaming, yelling at each other. Yeah, so for opinion, it's pretty stimulating. Do you tweet much? No, I'm a huge tweeter. I mean, I'm opinionated and I get out there and holler. I mean, like, I mean, obviously, as a business 
we want people to pay for the content. As a columnist trying to build your personal brand, you want as many people to read it as possible. So that is in tension with the business model a bit. So that means that I'm particularly active to kind of get my thoughts out there and build a bit of a profile, which doesn't happen by itself. And then the next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Well, this guy isn't really a journalist as such. I believe he's still alive. Rory Stewart. He's like a former British military guy, but spent a lot of time in the Middle East. And he wrote this book called The Places in Between. So this guy is freaking nuts. When the Taliban were taken out by the Bush administration and they were fleeing from the U.S. military forces, basically Rory Stewart, you know, who speaks like tons of Middle Eastern languages, you name it, he speaks a little bit of it and some of it's fluent. But he decided to walk across Afghanistan on foot by himself. And he just grew out a beard and did it. And he wrote a book about it. And it was fascinating, like the absolute definition of on-the-ground reporting. But over a really long period of time, it was, it was just this fascinating approach. Because he was by himself, he had no gear, he had no group, he wasn't in like a Humvee. Nobody looked at him as like a Westerner or a foreigner. I mean, like had Al-Qaeda or anybody, the Taliban, known that there's just this British guy out there, he would have been kidnapped. But like, nobody is threatened by a guy just kind of trudging down the road with a beard. And that, and he had cover <laughs> because there were so many like Al-Qaeda people, people from other parts of the Middle East had come there to fight. So like the fact that he didn't look like an Afghan didn't matter because they'd assumed actually he was one of these other holy warriors who were pulling out. But so he walked all the way across. It's a fascinating book. He adopts a dog at one point. For like half of it, he has diarrhea. He knows all about the history of the region, like going back to ancient times. He stumbled on this ancient imperial city that had been lost for like centuries, he relied on the Arabic or the Middle Eastern tradition of hospitality. You know, that you go knock on somebody's door and as a stranger and they bring you in and they feed you. And he basically did that all the way across. He would go into these little towns in the middle of the mountains in Afghanistan. <laughs> You'd start yelling at them. you like, what, what happened to your hospitality? Aren't you going to feed me? You know, he'd like give them guilt trips and they would feed his <laughs> ass. And then he'd write about these conversations about the society and what was happening politically. And it was just riveting. And then thanks to that stunt, they gave him a job in Iraq running, I want to say it was a province down by where the Marsh Arabs were. Yeah. So he got a job for the British government being like a representative of the occupying forces restoring democracy. This is another book about like him trying to govern and it's called Prince of the Marshes, I believe. And then what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm just such a weird journalist background, right? So for better or for worse, like I didn't start being a journalist full time till I was in my mid 30s. So I mean, if I've got a pitch, it's just kind of like I've done a bunch of other stuff. I've worked in software, I've built websites, I've done all sorts of funny jobs. The background I have, I guess, with refugee resettlement and then with the work in, in keto and a developing economy, you know, kind of they gave me a good background on what it's like actually have your money invested in a new country where you're just getting started and everything is kind of at risk. So, I mean, I think that helps when I go and look at China or you know, any place else. I was a business journalist having run a business in a country where you couldn't trust the institutions or the currency or, or anything, what that's like psychologically. And I think that helps me bring a bit of empathy to my reporting more than a lot of other people who write about finance. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I mean, if I was my younger self, and I was looking at where I am now, I would be pretty pleased at how things worked out, like living overseas and speaking other languages. This would just be absolutely kind of the dream. So like, man, I don't know. Should I have started journalism earlier? Should I have done anything differently? 
I don't know. I guess in retrospect, I would, I would not really tell them to do anything differently on the career front. But I mean, certainly I would have lots of advice on, <laughs> on some personal relationships, knowing what I know now. <laughs> but I'm not going to share that with you. <laughs> sure. And then what is one thing that most people don't know about you? You know, I used to own a pig, right? And it got arrested. You know that story. I told everybody that one. <laughs> no, um, I, I don't think I've heard that one. Oh, okay. Well, maybe a lot of people don't know that I was famous in college. Like one of the first articles I wrote was because I was raising a pig in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and it got arrested and put in jail. And I wrote this huge, it was my first op-ed, I guess. I wrote this huge rant about how the city should let our pig stay. And it actually went viral in Harrisonburg and it turned into this big, big, big deal. But yeah, I would raised a pig on the top floor of this apartment building, which is a terrible idea. And it turned <laughs> political, political thing. And it's now been actually digitized. I stumbled on the article the other day. God help me. All these things that I thought were just paper forever have been pulled back out. So you can actually read my article. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify, you got arrested or the pig got arrested? The pig got arrested. The pig yeah. got arrested. We had trained him to walk down the stairs. He wouldn't wear a leash, so we had to train him to follow us <laughs> with this frisbee full of potato chips or whatever. And we'd go on walks on campus. And then one day somebody left the door open and he was he used to go in places without a leash. So he went down the stairs, went onto campus and tried to get into a trash can. And the cops dragged him off. We had to go get him out of a... He was actually in the city of Harrisonburg jail, like in a little pen on the side. He had to drag him out. And then the animal control people came and took him away from us. And there was this whole war over the pig. <laughs> he was on television. How, he was famous. <laughs> where, how did things turn out for the pig in the end? Oh, mixed. They wouldn't change the law. You could have all sorts of animals in the city of Harrisonburg, but they had a law against pig. They didn't want people, it's kind of a rural area. They didn't want people to be engaged in like small scale livestock raising. So, I mean, this was a small pig and it was a pet, but they didn't change the law. There was a bit of tension between the town people and the college people anyways. So they didn't make a bend. So we had to hide him. So we got him out. We bailed him out. We just hid him in our house during the day and would only take him out for walks at night. But yeah, I mean, he was loved. So all the people looked the other way. We were walking right by like the county hospital and tons of security people. And nobody was going to narc us because they all loved the pig. But yeah, we couldn't take him out during the day anymore. And then eventually he, he moved to, to Tennessee and I moved to Atlanta and we parted ways. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Did he live out his days happily? Did not eat him. Did not eat him. <laughs> and then what is your favorite film, book, TV or other media property about journalists and why? I mean, my first <laughs> facetious answer is <laughs> Big Trouble in Little China because there's that really annoying journalist character in it. Very campy movie and he's got a journalist character who's really annoying. <laughs> I've got to get my story. Do anything. There's not a lot of good movies about journalists, honestly. Like it's are there I mean, I like press, the British show. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. It's kind of like there's the serious publication that doesn't make any money, and then there's the tabloid, you know, which is all slick and political and kind of the struggle between the two and that, that kind of touches on a lot of the issues and also like throws in some details of like ordinary muckraking journalism life, trying to interview bereaved people like you know, the crime beat and stuff like that. So it's got a couple of starting journalists and it. it's more interesting, the American stuff, because like the British tabloid media is this totally separate, amazing beast you know, that just doesn't exist in the States. Interesting press. No one it was out. Um, 2018. It's like a BBC drama. Oh, it's recent. Okay. Huh. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. And then the last question is qualification aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I think I would be a restaurateur. 
which is a terrible, terrible idea. But I love cooking. And I worked in restaurants for a long time, as a lot of Americans do, to make a spare buck. And I actually found it kind of zen-like. If I didn't need the money, I would do that, I think. Okay, cool. Well, that's the end of my questions. So yeah, I'll just finish by saying thanks so much for spending all this time and talking to me. All right, cool. Well, it's always a pleasure, Jake. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Pete Sweeney, a columnist with Reuters Breaking Views in Hong Kong. I'll post links to some of Pete's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at ForeignPod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash ForeignPod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, May 3rd. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.